What's up, guys? Super special interview coming your way today on the podcast. Cannot wait for you to listen to this one. We're bringing on a former Heisman Trophy running back, a man who played for Texas, played many years in the NFL. He's a, a cannabis advocate as well. His name is Ricky Williams. You're not going to want to miss this one. I want to also remind you guys that this episode is being brought to you by Rip Nutrition. It's a locally owned and operated supplement store here in the Treasure Valley of Idaho. You know, they've got a ton of supplements out there including the RIP series, along with Hyped Subs, Insane Labs, Bucked Up, Innova Farm, Chaotic Labs, a ton more. Make sure to go check them out. I've got the link here to the address in the description of the podcast, but they're a sponsor of the show. Amazing. They've got tons of proteins. They've got products for weight loss, muscle building, pre-workouts, stem-free pre-workouts, everything you need. And they're available for consultations as well. So if you're an athlete, if you're a parent, whatever, if you're just a fitness enthusiast, maybe you're new to the game and you want to learn a little bit more about the supplements you're taking, check it out, go to Rip Nutrition, and they will get you taken care of. Again, guys, such an amazing interview coming your way. We're going to be learning from one of the best to do it in the NFL, a guy I watched for many years as I was growing up and had a major like just fandom for this guy. I'm a fanboy, but now I get to bring him onto my platform. This is the Game Time Guru. So, what time is it? Game Time Boost! This is the Game Time Guru Podcast where I interview sports figures from all over the world to help deliver a panoramic view on sports. So whether you're a former athlete, one of the crazies, or simply a casual sports fan, this is the perfect show for you as we peel back the curtains and learn from our guests every single week. I'm your host, Shane Larson, and I'm helping you see sports through a different lens. What's up, everybody? Welcome out to another episode of the Game Time Guru Podcast. My name is Shane Larson, host of the show. Six years running. Want to give a massive shout out to all the listeners who have joined us. 179 countries, all 50 states, and it's thanks in large part to every one of you guys who have you know, tuned in at some point during the last six years and have listened to our guests on the show. We've had a variety of interviews. Every single Friday, we drop a new episode where I interview sports figures. We get to learn about their lives. We get to learn about the things that they've learned throughout their journey and really just kind of get the insight from them. Um, and I want to give a, a shout out to all the athletes that listen to this podcast. I coach basketball and I know there's a lot of, a lot of young athletes that are in the high school range that, you know, tune in and their parents tune in. So I'm just grateful for your guys' support as well. And I hope you guys take notes today because we're talking to an amazing guest. As you guys heard in the introduction, man, this dude, I can't even speak enough kind words about this guy. I, I uh, am a huge fan. I'm a fanboy of this guy. I've been watching him since I was young. Uh, Heisman Trophy winner in the late 90s, 98 from Texas, uh, all pro running back in the NFL. And man, I'm just so excited to, to bring him on. His name is Ricky Williams. Uh, Ricky, thanks so much for joining the show, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. So Ricky, I want to kind of go back in time because there's a couple of things I want to dissect in this interview. I mean, I've like I said, I've been a fan of yours from as from the time you were at Texas, I was in the fifth grade, I believe, when you were at Texas, which is wild to me now that I'm like 34 years old, I'm talking to you. But the thing is, is you always were like the guy that had the swag, the the visor and everything. And all my friends growing up through middle school and high school, we always talked about how how dope you looked in your uniform and like everybody wanted to be like you. You know, everyone talked about Dion being like the swag, but no, no, no. Ricky had the swag. That's what we always said. He had the visor and he was like the the first to really do it that way and just was a huge fan of yours. But I want to go back in time. If we could rewind the clock prior to your college football experience, talking about your your sports experience growing up, because what a lot of people might not know is that you played multiple sports. In fact, you played them at a high level, specifically baseball as well. But talk about when you really got into competitive athletics and the sports that you competed in and how they might have like 
I guess, coexisted with each other, how baseball affected football and if there was anything else that you competed in as well. Yeah. So, you know, for me, this, the story goes, it goes back to when I was five, I was five years old. I was in kindergarten and my kindergarten teacher, she, she really believed in physical education. So it wasn't something that the school mandated, but every morning we would walk down to the field and we would jog two laps around the field. And I remember thinking, why do we have to do this? And after like the first week, the idea popped into my head is, I wonder if I can be the first one to finish, you know, competitive, okay? And so I ran my little heart out and I, I lapped a couple of people and it started to like settle in as my identity. And so every single day for the rest of the school year, I was the first one to finish the two laps around and became the fastest kid in kindergarten, right? And even at the end of the year, you know, in elementary school, when they do the awards banquet, okay, I got my first award for physical education, right? And I don't know if it was synchronicity or my mom consciously did it, but she transferred my sisters and I to a different school. And in Southern California, they have a, what's called a magnet program. And they have certain schools spread out across the county where that specialized in science or arts or different things. And my elementary, Green Elementary, specialized in physical education. So from first grade until sixth grade, I had, you know, the normal recess and everything, but I had an hour of physical education every single day. Oh, wow. You know, really like we had like six PE teachers. So it was a, the focus of our school. And so I was like, I grew up in that environment, you know, where I was appreciated and rewarded and had a sense of identity because in an mag, uh, athletic mag, magnet school, I was the most athletic kid in my, in my grade or one of the top three. Um, and, you know, in elementary school, I started playing Little League. I started playing t-ball when I was in the second grade, and that was my first organized competitive sport. And I didn't start playing football until I entered the seventh grade, you know. Um, and, you know, when I started playing football, so I was known as a baseball player. And my dream as a kid was to be the next Tony Gwynn. You know, I grew up in San Diego. Right, so right. so I, wanted, I wanted to be a baseball player. And then I started playing football. And... Um, I was better. I kind of surprised myself with how good I was as a football player. You know, I played running back and I played a little defense and I just love to run and I love to hit people and I'm smart. So I picked up the game and then it just really, it really took off. And so I enter high school. I'm, uh, I'm on the varsity baseball team, the varsity football team. And by the time I get to my junior year, I realize I want to try to do both of these, you know, because I want to be a professional baseball player, but I love college football. So I wanted to play college football. And I thought I, you know, I grew up being a Bo, Bo Jackson fan. So yeah. I thought, you know, I'll go to college and I'll play football. And in the summers during college, I'll play minor league baseball. And then when I'm done with football, I'll go full time to baseball. That was the plan. Wow. But I was so much better at football than I was at baseball that I kind of gave up on that plan and went the football route. Man, it's so wild, like how it all it goes all the way back to kindergarten. I'm sure if somebody like, you know, a lot of high level athletes probably can go back in time and kind of pinpoint in a time, but I don't know if anyone's going to say kindergarten. Most of the time I've talked to athletes, they'll say around seven, eight years old, but kindergarten, yeah. man, like you're, yeah. you're young. Yeah. Ah, that's, that's wild. You know, Ricky, as you, as you were making that decision, you know, you, you knew you were going to be playing at the collegiate level, at least for football. Like you knew you were that talented, especially in the high school realm, I guess. Talk to me about the preparation and the transition from the high school game where you were playing to then playing at Texas, like a very, prominent university big football program what was the transition going from a high school student athlete to that of a co collegiate student athlete and a, a high level one at that yeah i think the the most important thing about the transition is is the fit the fit 
No. So I, I coached a little college football and I, and you know, one of my jobs was recruiting, you know, and there'd be kids good, like a lot of talent, you know, and they want to go to a big school cause that's where their friends want them to go and their family. But if they go to that big school, they're not going to play, you know? Right. But smaller schools, you know, want them to start as a freshman, you know, and they have this choice to make. Right. And so someone who wants to go to college and just enjoy the experience of being on a football team, but they really want, to, want the education side of it, you know, and they're like, I'll do the football thing, but it'll because it'll pay for my education. Go to the big school, right, where you're not going to start, you know, like do that. You'll enjoy the process. But if football is you love football, you got to be on the field. Don't go to somewhere where you're going to redshirt or have to play behind somebody. You know, that, that's not going to be a good fit for you. And so I think if, if athletes, when they are young and they're going through the recruiting process, they're conscious of fit and fit means what do you, what do you want your college athletic and academic experience to be like, right? Like erase any idea of who the school's out there, like start with yourself. What, what do you want to get out of the experience? That's what I did. And then start to go around and see which, which opportunity, right? Allows you to have the best chance to have that experience. Okay. And then if you do that, the transition is so much easier, okay? Speaking from experience, you know, I knew exactly what I wanted. I found it at Texas. I knew I was going to come in and start. So I was ready for it, you know? It was an adjustment. I had to learn the playbook quick, and I had to, you know, learn the hard way, meaning learning from my mistakes and being okay with that. And that's the other thing. When you're young, you have to assume you're going to make mistakes. And so start to work on your mental attitude about how you're going to bounce back from the mistakes. Don't be surprised by your mistakes. That's how you learn. That's how you get better. You know, and the other, the other thing I'm thinking is so much of experience and this has been, you know, they found this on research. Like if you're looking at a rookie and someone who's experienced, right? The difference isn't reaction time. It is, but it's based on where their eyes go. Right. When you have enough experience, you know where you're, you know where to put your eyes. I remember the, my first football game I'm playing running back and I got the ball. And everything just looked like this. That's, that's all I saw was just flashes. You know, I, I was like, I don't know what happened. But the more I played, okay, everything started to slow down. I could see things and I could respond to them. So it's just, you know, being willing to make mistakes, being willing to learn from your mistakes and finding the right fit. And if you do that, the transition, you're going you're gonna to be okay because you're already starting to do the transition work before, even before the recruiting process starts. I love that. I, I hope those who are listening, you go back and take notes. Like I said, get the notebook out. If you're listening to it on your iPhone or whatever, pop out your notepad on the iPhone, start taking notes. You can rewind that and listen to what he just said. I, I love the whole concept of the fit. Think about that. I think it's sometimes I think it's a pride thing. As I work with athletes that are trying to get recruited, um, a lot of my athletes that are, that are playing basketball, they're going to JUCOs, you know, they're going to junior colleges or smaller like D2s or NAIAs or whatever. And they, some of them get bummed about that. It's a pride thing. I'm like, no, man, if you're playing at the next level, that's, that's, that's a good thing. But I think they get so caught up at wanting to just be at a school. And then they get disappointed that they're not even seeing the court in my case, because I'm coaching basketball. But it's like, if they could see the fit and just understand that they're going to have a much better transition. It's not going to be so, so hard on them mentally. I love that. You know, I wanted to ask you, cause you, it sounds like you've always been a gifted athlete. And from what I've, what I've heard in all the interviews that I've, I've watched you on and, and I've read interviews, I've watched the 30 for 30 documentary about everything. I've watched your entire career from the NFL side of things. Um, it seems like you were always a gifted athlete, right? So like, it was like, man, he was just so fast. And then hearing your story, like you were, you know, beating everybody in the, in the fifth grade, but I want to know about the work ethic in the weight room and the training and so forth. When you got into the collegiate realm and then you, you obviously, you win the Heisman and I just want to know like what it takes to get to that level. So the, the, the people listening, whether they're college athletes or younger, 
understand what it actually takes. Cause yeah, you might be a gifted athlete, but I'm sure you were putting in work somewhere, right? Like to put in the work to keep yourself healthy. So, so I'd say my, my, I'm gifted athlete, but I think my, my greatest gift is my work ethic. You know? So part of the story I told earlier when I was in kindergarten is, is that I wanted to see if I could be the, if I could be the fastest one. Okay. And a lot of athletes, they, you know, they have that competitive nature and they want to see if they could be the best. But a lot of times once they see they're the best, they stop. Yes. But for me, once I, proved, I saw that I could do it, I had to do it every single day. I had to do it every single day. That's, that's the key to hard work, right? We've, we've all had a good workout. We've all had a good session. But the thing is, can we, when, we, when we have that session that just feels great, can we, can we make that the standard and at least try to hit that on a daily basis to make that the practice? You know, I love to practice so much and practice hard that the success I had in games always surprised me, always surprised me. Right. But it, it's really just my work ethic. You know, man. All right. That is what I love. See, I, I, I get frustrated when people see somebody who's so gifted, they don't realize what's going on behind the scenes there. Oh, they're just a gifted athlete. Like, yeah, you might've been athletic, but you had the competitive drive and the work ethic that went behind it. And I think that's a missing piece. A lot of the times you've got to have that. That is so awesome, man. So, you know, Ricky, as you were going, what I've heard in interviews too. So I wanted to kind of dissect this a little bit. I, I've heard a lot of the times you, you mentioned that your dream was to play college football. It was always a college football, like you've referenced college football. You won the Heisman. That was a dream. Like, but it didn't seem like, even though I knew you more so for your professional career in the interviews I've heard, it doesn't seem like you talk as much about your dream of playing professional football. So maybe, maybe I'm just mistaking that, but can you like maybe elaborate on that a little bit? Was your dream to play college football and was the NFL even in your sights when you were younger? No, no. I, I mean, I, I was a Chargers fan, so I like watching <laughs> professional football. But I never, I never had aspirations to be a professional football player. Um, I guess I didn't identify myself with that image of what I saw the professional football. Like, I, I'm not like a big, like masculine, like tough guy at all. You know, I'm like more sensitive. You know, uh, reflective. And and what I what I loved about the college football experience is that in college you're a family. It's a family, yeah. a college football team, just the amount of time you spend together. And for me, I grew up in San Diego and I was in Texas away from home. And one of the main reasons I chose Texas, part of the fit for me was that when I was on my recruiting trip, it felt like family. You know, yeah. just a just a side story here. So on my recruiting trip and two of the players on the team got into a fist fight. You know, we were, we were out on Sixth Street and they got into a fight. And 20 minutes later, we were back at the dorm and we were all laughing and hanging out together. And for me, that made such a such a strong impression on me of that feeling of family, because those things happen in family, right? Family, you get into a fight and everything's fine later. And I was like, I could see myself in this kind of environment with these kinds of guys for a long time. That is that's so cool. So I guess my follow up question to that then would be for and I'm sure there's a lot of listeners who are just casual fans that didn't know that, like that your goal was to play uh, college football and that you didn't really see yourself playing professional football. But what then made you decide to go there? Was it the money? And you're like, man, I can do this and it makes some good cash flow off this and retire off this kind of thing. Like, um, obviously, like you were a high level athlete, one of the best to do it in college. But what made you, you know, ultimately say, OK, I can I can go play professional football, even though I don't necessarily look like the 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 typical macho man with, you know, you, like you said, you're more reflective, sensitive and so forth. What made you make that decision? Well, a couple of things. I think the main reason is I didn't have another plan. Okay. You no, know? because because baseball is hard. 
You know, I, I learned like I had because you're a kid, you have a dream and a vision. But as you live life, reality comes in. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and the reality was I can't play every day, you know, for 160 days. That's not like that's that's not you know, I'm a seasonal person. Right. I'll go hard. I go so hard. I need like a, an off season. You know? Yeah. In baseball, playing minor league baseball, I realized this, this is not for me. And because I put all my eggs in the athletic basket and I didn't put my eggs in the academic basket that I didn't really have any other choices. And then the money and the fame and all that stuff, you know, but I, I feel like if I would have come into college with a clear goal on what I want to do academically, then I at least would have had more flexibility and more of a choice. And even if I would have gone in the NFL, I would have had a plan. I'm going to play for this many years so that I can support myself to do these other things that I'd like to do. But I entered the NFL without a plan. And so I kind of was like stuck. Totally. Okay. So that's, that's, that's insightful. Um, so going back, you would probably have a plan, at least at college, like academically and so forth, so that you could have an idea. Like, cause there's a lot of people who say, you don't need a plan B, just go all, like, there's no plan B, but like, you feel it's like not a plan that. B. It's not a plan. Like, I, I, I fell prey to the plan B conversation when I was a kid. Uh-huh. Everyone doesn't make, I had no doubt I was like going to make it some somewhere. So when people said, if you don't make it, have a plan B, I was like, what? that's that's the response of you know go all the way in it's not a plan b it's actually a plan a because even if you're tom brady okay when tom brady retires if he ever retires he's still <laughs> gonna have another 40 years probably of his life okay that's not a plan b right because yeah. if you look if you look at humanity right the purpose of life is to gather experiences so when we get into our 50s 60s 70s right that's when we have the most to offer the world so it's not a plan B. It's more of what, what, what is my goal in life and how can basketball, football, how can what I'm doing right now propel me and help me get there? And I think if I had a, like a larger plan of not just sports and a job, but a larger plan of like what's important to me, it would have kept me more aligned. And even when I became a professional football player, how to utilize, you know, the contacts and the, the cachet and the perks that I had to, to further my, my larger vision. So insightful, man. That's, that's awesome. Because yeah, I think a lot of people fall victim to that whole conversation of there's no plan B and so forth. I love what you just said right there. You know, Ricky, as you got into the NFL with the saints, the first time I ever actually heard about like your social anxiety disorder and everything was during the 30 for 30 documentary. Um, I never knew what was really going on behind the scenes. I just remember hearing that like, you know, it wasn't as a successful start to your NFL career. Like, I mean, what like at, at the beginning, everybody had these high hopes for this, you know, Heisman running back coming into the NFL and there were some issues there. And I'm just going off the documentary that I, that I had watched, but can you talk to me about your first couple of years in the NFL and, and maybe the pressures that you felt as a professional athlete and getting, and getting used to the professional part of the sport as compared to, like you said, the college game where it's more like a family. Yeah. Yeah. So when I left college, um, because I hadn't really thought beyond, I just assumed that when I go to the NFL, it's going to be similar. But as soon as I like, as soon, we played in the Cotton Bowl my last game in college, and then I started, you know, the awards tour, and then I started training for the combine. And as soon as I started interacting with NFL people, I could just feel it was different. Yeah, it was like it wasn't family; it was the opposite. I was just, you know, a, a chess piece. You know, I was like the queen. I was a, a glorified chess piece, but I was just a chess piece. I wasn't a human being anymore. And, and for me, the, the money, the fame, it wasn't worth giving up my humanity. And so I struggled with that. You know? And I'm the kind of person, for me to perform well and as part of the swag, I have, to feel, I have to feel good. That's why being in a situation that feels like family was so important to me. 
And so especially when I got to New Orleans, you know, the only draft pick, all these guys, why are we giving all that, right? I haven't proved my – it just didn't feel like – it didn't feel like family. And then I got hurt, you know. I got hurt first preseason game. And I battled injuries, something I hadn't done my whole year, that whole year. So I'm battling injuries and difficulty, and I'm unhappy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so because part of, part of the recovery process, the healing process, is you got to have energy. You got to have vitality. You got to be feel good in order for the body to recover. If you're hurt, banged up, sick, and you don't feel good, whew. Like, so, so that, that year was, was a lesson, you know, a lesson. And it took me a couple of years, but eventually I had to learn that regardless of what the expectations were from the outside, I had to learn to listen to my heart and take care of myself. And that was a challenge because when the, you have all the money and the fame and the things that people think that, that what the people think what life is all about, you know, the good news is you have the ability to have the experience of, I have all these things this isn't what life is all about, then you can pursue something more meaningful. And a lot of people live their whole life with the dream of climbing for that thing that they think life is all about. So I feel fortunate that at a young age, I had that experience to know, at least for me, I need something more than this. So awesome, man. I mean, also, can you tell the audience like what your contract was like when you set up with the Saints? Because to me, I remember that was the first time I had heard that too in the 30 for 30 documentary. So how did you set up your rookie contract when you first signed with the Saints? So I told my agent, I, I told my agent what I wanted, you know, and I said, you know, I said, I'm the only draft pick and there's a, there's a rookie pool. So a team has so much money they can spend on their rookies. And I was the only rookie. So I said, just, just get me the signing bonus. Just get me the whole pool of money. And everything else I, I do, I should have to earn through incentives. And I made really lofty incentives, you know, because growing up, again, I didn't have the, I didn't have a vision of being an NFL player. But growing up, what I heard people say about professional athletes or NFL players is that it's all about the money. And so I saw, you know, me coming into the NFL, Heisman Trophy winner, everyone's going to be looking at what I do. I saw it as an opportunity to be an example, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Man, so, it, didn't, it didn't. It didn't go. I mean, it wasn't received as an ex, a good example. It was received as someone who was dumb and didn't take advantage of their leverage. That's the thing, though. I I wish more people were like that. When I heard that for the first time, I had to have been, I don't know, 21, 22. and and I had no idea that that's how the contract was set up. And I figured out all that stuff. And I'm like, man, the the pressures that were just you. I mean, I thought I was like, man, he put a lot of pressure on himself. Then he battled injuries and all that stuff, but. Just all the well, stuff wait, but here's the thing, though. Like when we say pressure, like the, my point was, I have, you know, I, I, my signing bonus was almost nine million dollars, okay, wow. and then my base salary, a couple hundred thousand dollars, okay. To me, I, that took all the pressure off. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, because I, for me, I wasn't playing for the money. Like to me, the value of being in the NFL wasn't the excess of millions; it was the opportunity to have a platform to share what was important to me. But when I got the platform and I started sharing what was important to me, like not playing for the money, for making a, using this platform to make a difference, to inspire people, you know, they called me weird and that I was stupid. It wasn't a positive thing. I was denigrated for doing that. And so my whole meaningful purpose of being in the NFL was negated from day one. No one really cared what I had to say or how I felt because it didn't fit into their box of what an athlete should be. That brings me to another question for you because I've always respected you. This is a big reason. It wasn't just because of the swag. It was because even back then, 
when I didn't fully understand all the, the different things, you stood for something that was different. You were always just standing for something that was different than what the, you know, stereotypical athlete, the, the NFL guy would be. And when there was the, when you, you had, you had left the NFL and you were an advocate, you know, you're an advocate for cannabis. And we'll get into that just a little bit with the, the whole Heisman uh, brand and everything too. But learning more about that, like you stood up for something that you felt was right. And you, you just, you did you, and that's very hard for people to do, especially in the NFL, because they're getting a hefty paycheck and they kind of transform into this different person. I guess now in the world, a lot of, a lot of younger kids are struggling with the same thing at a young age. Like they, they're trying, they're being molded into something that they might not truly be. And you've talked about it already, Ricky, about like finding who you are, being happy with who you are. Is there any advice you could give to us about how you were able to accomplish that and be able to do that and still stay sane, so to speak? Hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, the, the, the easy, cheap answer is that it's always I've always felt it was my calling. And I think, you know, I think just growing up in, in Southern California and so I was talking about my, my elementary school. So what they did in, in a lot of school districts is when they started um, busing kids across town you know, to create integration is they started creating these magnet programs where they would have the advanced classes and then the regular classes. And that was a way to kind of keep the, the, the races separate, you know? Ah, okay. But somehow I guess I tested high for my IQ. And so I was put in the advanced track. So I was different than all of the different background, different experience, different, just different from all the kids that I was around all the time. And so I, I think I identified with being the outsider, so I think I always wanted to feel like to use my fame to champion and create space and to create room and to create, to be a role model for people who feel like they're outsiders because the part of us that is unique and different, right. Is the part of us where we're going to feel like outsiders. And, and until we can embrace that and realize that if we can contribute our uniqueness to the group, it's going to add more diversity. It's going to be more interesting and it's going to give other people more permission to be themselves. And I think in any group, Right. Even in any relationship, when people are being themselves, it's just more fulfilling. It's more fruitful. And if you're being yourself, that's more fulfilling and fruitful because you don't have to use energy to keep parts of yourself tamped down. And I did that for a long time and I hated it. And I felt like I'm famous now. I don't have to do that. So I'm not going to anymore. You know, and it was kind of a process of that. And that to me, that's the that was the real value of fame was freedom. You know, Ooh. and so. So my advice to people is be curious about what's unique and different about you and be curious about how your environment, your team, the people around you can benefit from that. Because it's, it's going to be rare that you find someone from the outside telling you to be who you really are. Mainly people want you to be what they want you to be. Totally, man. You know, as you, as you, you, you went away from the NFL, you know, and, and you came back to the Dolphins. And I remember there was a suspension uh, there was a suspension based on, you know, the, the, the drug policy and whatnot. And, um, and then you went up to Canada for a short period of time. To my understanding, you got, I thought you got hurt. Didn't you break your arm? I broke my arm. Yeah. Yeah. It was like your forearm or something. I, yeah. I, I just yeah. remember I was so bummed because you looked so dope in that like outfit too, up there and uh, up in Canada too, but <laughs> it, it's just wild. But you know, you, you had the opportunity to come back, um, and you knew the drug policy and this is what I kind of wanted to get into. You, you don't have to give specifics or anything, but I've talked to David Irving and maybe, you know, who yeah. David Irving is. Yeah. So I've had him uh, on my show before and he, he talked about his advocacy for, for cannabis, obviously. And he talked about all this stuff and, you know, went into detail with the drug policy. And I know the NFL has become more lenient, at least the, the NBA specifically has been more lenient. NFL's getting there. Yeah. Um, 
But I guess my question is, I, I always had this question that I'm, and now that I have you here, I would love to ask you is you knew that you weren't going to stop and you knew the drug policy was what it was. Did you, how did you go about like mentally saying like, well, I'm going to come in here and be able to play still. How did, like, did you think that you would even be able to play without getting suspended? I guess I was, I just was wondering, like, he knew he wasn't going to stop. So how yeah. did we go about this with this ridiculous policy they had in the first place, in my opinion? You know, so, and this is the way I understand it. Okay. Is I'm the kind of person that, if I feel called to do something, uh-huh. there's nothing's really going to stop me. I love it. You know? And my thing is I'm going to figure a way to do it. And if I get caught or I break the rules, I just suffer the consequences and just keep on moving. Now I grew up, I grew up Christian. So I grew up with the myth of the guy that, that gets pinned to the cross, you know, for, for sticking true to his beliefs. So I had kind of a role model that I could like call back on when I felt like I was doing what I needed to do, what was right for me, what I was called to do, but the external structures around me didn't agree. I mean, that's, but if people don't do that, then these external structures don't ever evolve. You know, they stay stuck in the past. And so I, I, you know, eventually I embraced like being an innovator and just and and changing stupid rules and, and we're getting there. But to me, you know, it's, it's crazy being in the football environment and to see how many pharmaceuticals they give us, you know, Ambien, Indocin, Toradol, opioids. It's insane, you know? Oh, yeah. And just to experience it, like, you know, if, if you take Indocin or Toradol and you, don't, and you don't eat before, it's the worst constipation ever. Oh, my God. It hurts so bad. I don't mean to be... <laughs> too candid but it's like it's uncomfortable you know and just that whole mentality it, it like it drove me crazy and i started i started smoking with one of my with one of my teammates and i noticed that you know it, it helped not only helped my body feel better but it, it helped me relieve a lot of the stress and change my perspective and see the bigger picture and so the, the cannabis was so helpful to me you know, and, and like, it's a joke. And I think people who who overvalue money don't get it. But when I did the math, what cannabis was giving me was more than what football was giving me. Football was tearing my body up. It was making me like it was overriding me with stress. It was putting me around situations and people that I didn't really like vibrate with. And so when I looked at it, like cannabis helped clear my mind and helped me realize I don't need to be doing this. There's other things that I need to be doing that are going to feel more meaningful to me. And it really Man. supported me in that process of, of making the transition to a life that feels more meaningful to me. So interesting. Yeah. I love that, man. So here's uh, you, you kind of answered my question there too, because you talked about how it helped you with your mental state as well. I mean, for someone who is battling with, you know, anxiety and, and so forth, that's, it was so taboo back then. It's, it's still kind of taboo now, but not as much. More and more people that are, I guess, the the higher level athletes and you know celebrities and so forth are coming out with, you know, being more open about their their mental health. But it's still sort of quiet, especially for men. But you talked about how it helped you with the mental aspect. We talked about pharmaceuticals. You know, I talked to Max Hall. He was a former quarterback in the NFL. He played for BYU. Then he went to the. He was playing for Arizona, and he, played, you know, a variety of places and. He talked about his, that's how his addiction started was because they were pumping him full of different, you know, opioids when he got hurt and he was trying to keep his contract because he wanted to make a team so he could make his, his next contract, get paid. Lo and behold, he becomes addicted to, to drugs and then it spiraled down a whole new after football. He was, you know, cocaine and all sorts of things and it was causing problems. And, you know, we had that same conversation about, you know, 
cannabis and just kind of like what that could have been for him. And it's just interesting to me. I love that. Like, here's the other part of this. You stay true to your beliefs and who you were. And you said, okay, well, I'm going to suffer the consequences if it is, but I'm going to be me. To the people who think, and I might have been this type of person back in the day, that like those who smoke weed are these lazy, uh, can't get it done, they can't execute, I'll never have them at my job. Well, I would like to look at your career as the example of like, you really think that somebody who smokes marijuana is lazy? You had a very successful career with that on there. So like, what would you say to the people who who, who claim that? Like, oh, if we legalize it, um, every, they're going to be lazy. We're not going to have productive workers in the job force and everything. Like, what would your, your statement be to them? Well, a couple of things. One is is the way I view people when they start smoking and they become lazy, right? It's more that they realize that they're they're enslaving themselves to something that doesn't feel good to them. Ah, yeah. Right, but I feel like sometimes people get stuck there. And the next step is to think of what would feel good to me, you know? And I think that, so that's part of the stigma, but but also I think another part, something that is important to say is a lot of people, athletes, when they talk about using cannabis, and, and people, are, they feel more comfortable talking about it helps with pain and inflammation, okay? Or even people when they're talking about using it for anxiety. The, the, the way I hear people talk about it, they, they use it like an antidepressant, where it just oh, helps yeah. me feel better in the moment. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what I call self-psychotherapy, you know? And people that have had experience with cannabis, sometimes when you smoke, they, they might call it paranoia, but it's all those thoughts those parts of yourself that you don't want to deal with and you don't want to look at and you keep pushing down when you smoke, you can't hide from those. You can't hide from those places and it forces you to have to deal with them. But when you deal with them, you get more clear about who you are and what's important to you. And it's easier to make those decisions moving forward. So the people on the couch, I would say when you're on the couch and you're smoking, think about what you'd really like to do with your life. What's going to be meaningful. What's going to feel good to you. That's, because when something is stigmatized or taboo, we don't ever talk about how to use it properly. We just say, yeah. don't use it. And now that it's becoming more legal or people just have greater access to it, we need to start shifting the conversation. People that have experience, people that have shown that they know how to consume cannabis and use it to enhance the quality of their lives, those people need to have a stage. And that's why I launched Heisman. You know, our tagline is spark greatness. There's so many conversations going on in the world right now about cannabis, but I don't hear anyone talking about how can this help me achieve greatness. And as a football player, that's everything I did was how do I use this to achieve greatness? Right. Everything I did, including cannabis. And so I think people that have had that mindset, they have they have real knowledge that the world needs and is going to need in the future as more people start consuming cannabis. You know, talking about Heisman that you just you mentioned, you're the visionary behind it. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the brand. What what it exactly is? Because you said that's why I launched Heisman. Now people are probably like, okay, I want to know more. So yep. tell us what Heisman's all about, so we can we can find out about that. Yeah, so it, it's a brand. You know, it's it's really interesting stepping into the industry and because there's so many brands, right? And what I yeah. see most brand is that let me make something that looks really cool that people can connect to, and we trick them into buying us. Okay. But my vision of a brand is like when I was a kid, <clears throat> you know, I'm a big Bo Jackson fan, Nike, right? You yeah. know, Bo knows, right? That commercial, classic, right? When I put on Nikes, right? When I put those on, I felt like Bo Jackson. Yeah. That's a brand, you know, something that like 
it moves you, something you really can, something that inspires you, something that you can put on your body, you can consume, you can interact with. And there's a, there's values that are really important to you. And by interacting with that brand, it builds those values up in you. That's my idea of a brand. And so when I launched Heisman, I was thinking, you know, because of my story, and I meet people all the time, right? People come up to me with a smile. I always know they're smokers, right? Because right? we, yeah, we yeah. talk, we dap it up, and we start having these amazing conversations. And I realize most of the people out there, they don't have a cannabis brand that's inspirational. And so I said, I'm an inspiring person. I love cannabis, like, and I have a story. Why not put this, this brand out into the world to give people something to rally around and embrace the, these meaningful qualities of sparking greatness? an inner self-reflection and realizing that to truly have greatness, you got to feel good on the inside about what you're doing on the outside. And that is so awesome. So spark greatness kind of being the tagline behind it. If somebody wants to find out more about Heisman, do they just go to Heisman.com or where can we find more about that, Ricky? Heisman.com. Yeah. Heisman okay. So, just you know, right, right now we're, 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 we have flour, you know, we have flour working on edibles, but we're not just, we don't just sell weed. You know, it's, yeah. it's the idea like, even I think when someone is consuming cannabis, that's from, from our brand Heisman, that the idea of spark greatness, at least a seed of a thought is in there. At least if they're thinking about what I've accomplished in my life and they, the things that I say and what they hear and, and if they've been inspired by it, that that enters into their, into their altered state that enters into their, into their ritual time. Right. And I feel like that's a way that I could touch a lot of people with my story and my life that shares a lot of the same interest. Totally. Yeah. Totally. I'm going to put that link here in the description for everybody who's, who's listening to this. Um, check it out. Um, this is awesome. I, I, I love the vision behind it, the entrepreneurial side of you and stuff, just on top of just the athlete, like you've got the entrepreneurial side, the business side, like you've got the vision and I, and I respect that a lot. You know, Ricky, uh, as we kind of get towards the tail end of the interview, I kind of want to ask you about some, some football talk in your professional career at the different cities that you played. I mean, New Orleans, you had Miami, Baltimore, you played up in Canada. Um, I just want to kind of talk to you about like what, where your favorite place was. Just talk about a favorite memory that you had. Uh, where was your favorite place to play? And what was your favorite, uh, your favorite NFL memory that you had during the long career that you you've had in the NFL? Yeah, that's, that's easy. My favorite place was, <laughs> was, uh, was Miami by far. Uh, and so why is that? Why is that? Why, why, why Miami? Is it the beaches? Is it, what, what was it about Miami? It's just, it was just the, the, the role that Miami played in my story. So, you know, three years in New Orleans, ups and downs, had 2,000-yard seasons, but a lot of injury. And I got traded to Miami, uh, perennial playoff team, great defense, needed a running back. And it was Miami. Okay, And another thing, my one of my best friends in the world at the time, still is, Dan Lebetard, lived in Miami. So got to move in the same town as my best friend um, with a, a fresh start. And that, that first year, just the whole first year, except for the last five minutes of the season. But that whole first year was my favorite NFL experience. You know, I, I, you mentioned I was an all-pro. I was an all-pro running back that year, led the NFL in rushing, went to the Pro Bowl, the MVP of the Pro Bowl. But, you know, last game of the year, we were up on the Tom Brady and the Patriots with like three minutes left. They tie it up, go and beat us in overtime, and we missed the playoffs. So great year, but it didn't end so well. But still, that, that was a, a magical time for me in the NFL. So cool, dude. Um, who was your favorite teammate that you ever played with and why? Ronnie Brown. Ronnie wow. Brown because, you know, very often when you have, you know, two first-round picks playing the same position, you know, there can be – it can be competitive. Yeah. But 
but we, we we worked out together. We shared notes. We like had each other's back. You know, it was it was amazing. You know, he, a, a great player, a great person, and just to have that kind of that big heart, not to want to hog the spotlight and to be able to share it. It was it was special. Yeah, I thought that duo was amazing. Like you guys had such a good backfield there with the two of you. You guys, that that's so cool. I didn't know if you guys were ever friends or not. I just figured you guys were solid as as athletes and competitors together. So, uh, and in regards to that's someone you played with. Who would you say is the best athlete you played against during your professional career? That's a, he's another easy one. <laughs> Ray Lewis is like okay, okay. That is easy. You know, he was fast. He was big. He was smart. He could anticipate. He's a force. You know, all through his career, from the beginning, and I, you know, I played against him kind of in the middle, and I played with him uh, his last, his last couple, of, or one of his last years, and he was a, he was like a tank even in practice, you know. So, <laughs> just this, dude, that's funny because you know we all see it, we see the motivational speaking from him, we everyone thinks it, but now you you had an opportunity to play against him and with him, so. In the NFL, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, games where there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of noise. Um, one of the things I would like for the athletes that are listening to this, Ricky, is just to kind of get some insight from you. Um, when you're when you're dealing with the pressures, maybe you're down. Uh, the game isn't going the way that you want it to go. How do you refocus and recenter so that you can really just execute and not let the noise in the game and the, all the outside pressures when the storm hits? Essentially, is what I always tell my athletes. Storms hit, and now we got to refocus and recenter because you can't just close your eyes and it's gone. You've actually yeah. got to fight through it and go. So maybe a, a piece of advice from you on how you refocus and recenter. Find one thing to focus on, one thing, and just focus on that. Oh, simple Because, you know, because the mind goes like this and it starts freaking out. <laughs> but if you find one thing that you can focus on, and it's helpful if it's something that you, that you have practiced focusing on because the energy of the chaos is so strong, you got to have a strong focus energy. And so for me in a running play, I would always focus on the, the play side foot of the center. I just would focus on that one spot. And when the ball was snapped, it just, it worked. So find one thing to focus on. Wow. Okay. That's actually really interesting. Yeah. Last three questions for you. Biggest life lesson that football taught you. If you can rewind and just look back at everything so far, biggest life lesson that football taught you. It's the importance of team. Team. You know? And team, to me, team means that we're a group, that we've agreed upon one goal, and we each understand our role in achieving that goal. I love it. And so even, you know, as an entrepreneur running a startup, it's, it's, I'm taking everything I've learned from my coaches and I'm applying it to what I'm doing. And the, for the, like I'm saying, the most important thing is team and making sure that everyone on the team, uh, you know, knows what their role is and feels appreciated for their contribution. You read my mind because my next question was about what you learned and, and, and acquired during your sports journey that you're now applying into your business journey. So that was perfect. You already caught that one. So I love that. So I guess the last question I'd have for you, Ricky, is what is the best advice you received ever in your life from a mentor of yours? And who was it, if you don't mind sharing the, the, mm. the mentor? Yeah. So a mentor's name is Gary Douglas. And the best advice was if you feel stuck, ask a question. Ask a question, you know, and it's just the, the power of questions, you know, because usually when you're stuck, it's because you think you have the answer and the way to unlock the fact that you think you have the answer is to ask a question. Was there ever a time specifically in your life that you were able to apply that? Oh, every day, <laughs> every day. You know, it's one of those pieces of advice that I take with me and I utilize at least 50 times a day. I love it. 
man. I just appreciate you being willing to join me, Ricky. This has been awesome uh, having that conversation with you. And um, again, and for everybody who's listening, hopefully you guys enjoyed this interview um, and, and make sure to go to Heisman.com. I'll put the link here in the description and share that with everybody. But just, yeah, one more time, a, a massive thank you to you, Ricky, for joining the Game Time Guru podcast, sir. No, keep up the good work. This is great. Thank you. Appreciate you. For everybody listening, make sure to tune in, subscribe to the show. We'll be coming to you next week with another interview. Take care. Guys, thanks so much for listening to another episode of my show. Now, if you could go and do me a favor, head over to iTunes, give me five stars and leave me a review. It would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, guys. Appreciate your support.